Some of you have had this experience. You drive off the mountain in the morning. If you live up here, as I do several times a week, taking my son to school. And on certain days, a stunning scene awaits. You pass by Rock City and Grand View, and you come along this little stretch where there's a clearing in the foliage. And you look out, and if it's been constructed just right by the Lord that day, you are in the middle of something far more magnificent than Thomas Kincaid ever manufactured. This suspended bit of cloud hung in God's sleight of hand by these invisible wires lofted over the city of Chattanooga with beams of colored light being refracted through it. And you're up above it, and you can imagine what those Civil War soldiers in the battle above the clouds felt like because you sense that we are actually above the clouds, but we can see through them. And it really can take your breath away if you pay attention to it. Sometimes you've just seen it so many times, or you're listening to music, or you're studying, getting ready for a class that day. You've got a million things on your mind, you don't see it. I love that scene, and we will often try to notice it. The other day, though, given this weather that we have started having from now, and I guess it will happen until March, where there will be nothing but perpetual fog for the rest of our lives. I hope you don't have seasonal affect disorder. Because if you do, say hello to clogging, blanketing, suffocating depression for the next four months. Because you will not see the sun again. Covenant College never puts brochure pictures of fog. (laughs) I've looked on their website. It's these magnificent fall days, but never a winter day. When I was in school, they had. When I was a college student, had Covenant friends. They had for the marriage mill on the hill. They had this uh, T-shirt that said, "A city on a hill cannot be hidden except by fog." (laughs) On the back, that was a great T-shirt. Jesus had not envisioned that possibility when he gave that stirring metaphor about the church's role in the world. But one of the things that happens is we were driving off the other day and we encountered something very dismaying. That a blanketing fog had covered the whole city as if it were not there. We had collided with a cloud. That's what happens to the mountain regularly. You're in a collision with a cloud and you realize it's not all that consoling. Who wants to live on a cloud? Good thing that heaven isn't being on harps being cherubim sitting on clouds because it's very disorienting if you're in a cloud. They're not nearly as pillowy and billowy as you think. What they really do is they make you claustrophobic. They obscure things that you know full well are there, but you're starting to have doubts. I thought there was a city down below. I know I've seen it before. I think I've even been there. I think I've driven its streets. I've experienced life there. I spent the largest portion of my growing up days in that city. But from what I can tell right now, it's not even there anymore. It just disappeared. Did the rapture come? And so I was thinking about this, how the fog can really fool you. And so I started talking to Kayla as we were driving, because, you know, in our passage today, it tells us to, to teach our children when you're driving in your Camry, when you're going down the mountain, to teach them these things. And so I was saying something very astute and, 
spiritually hardy about how fog correlates to the life of faith, where you live by faith and not by sight. We know there's something there, you know. And after he finished rolling his eyes, I, I said, this is what the Christian life is like. And I thought, this is what we need to think about as a people. Because in Deuteronomy, one of the things Moses is saying as he's channeling God's words to us is you're going to be enclosed with kinds of fog that obscure your vision from things you know full well are there. You saw them five minutes ago and you're going to forget them. He's giving them instructions. He's about to lay out the law, the Ten Commandments for them, another time as this group of people have traveled with them for 40 years. They're about to go into this really swanky land that God is just handing them. And he's warning them that there's going to be some substantial fog. And one of the things you notice if you ever try to drive in the fog is the first thing that goes is your visibility. But then you get disoriented. You can be on streets that you've known your entire life. You've driven on hundreds of thousands of times that you know as well as you know your social security number or the phone number in the house where you grew up. And suddenly you can't figure out where you are anymore. You're in your driveway and you don't even know it when you're driving in the fog sometimes. And things start closing in on you. The world gets very small in the fog. Have you tried to drive in the fog? What happens if the kids decide to have an argument or they want to sing a song? They want to sing some P. Diddy. I don't know. You're like, oh yeah, let's sing. And you're gripping the wheel. And I have to roll down the window usually. Because the fog starts closing in on my throat. It has fingers, you know strangulating fog it comes Moses says your brain's going to get foggy your heart is going to have a kind of Alzheimer's effect it and this is one of the worst things that happens to people if you lose your memory you lose yourself your memory is what holds things together like a mosaic it pulls things together and gives you a sense of identity of what you are and what you're about and who you're for and what you're for and if you should lose that You're just adrift. You're walking through fog. You don't know where you are. And so he's giving them some tips. He's giving them some suggestions for how to drive their life through the fog, which is how a lot of us spend our Christian life. And as we're thinking about this, I want you to keep one question in your head. Here's what he says. This isn't the question. This is what he says. Only be careful. Watch yourselves closely. So that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Your heart is going to be a butterfingers. You got to figure out ways with this leak in your heart. How do I shore it up so I can hang on to the memory of God? I heard a great story the other day. From Sally Warland. I haven't sought permission. I can't imagine this being offensive. If it is, someone's going to have to forgive me. Sally is having a prolific number of grandchildren through her children, you see. And Scott and Bonnie are here, I imagine. And they have a beautiful little girl named Norjean, another one named Harper, who's new. Norjean's three, Harper's uh, seven months old. And the other day, apparently, Norjean walked into a room. I don't have all the details straight exactly. She walked into the room where Harper was sleeping, and apparently she made some kind of noise. 
She rattled the situation in some way. And suddenly, Harper woke up and did what waking babies do. She started to scream and cry. She destroyed the shalom of the house. And little three-year-old Nora Jean, being exceptionally bright and perceptive, said, What was I thinking? To wake up baby Harper, what was I thinking? She knew you never wake a sleeping baby, and she lost her head for the moment. I just vandalized the quiet of our house. I just destroyed the possibility of joy. Now there's screaming, disorientation. There's all kinds of things that happen in your life where you say, what was I thinking? You look back and you realize I was temporarily insane at the moment. And if we're people who are to live by faith and not by sight, if we're people who are as inclined to let things slip from our hearts and have to be told, be careful, watch your lives closely so that you do not forget what happened five minutes ago. So you do not forget what trained you for 40 years. A question we can say is not just what was I thinking but this. In any given moment where we find ourselves distressed, disoriented, scared, lonely, sad, disquieted, discontented, angry, when we find ourselves in these states of being to ask this question, what am I forgetting? What am I forgetting? It's a very important question. And as we listen to Moses, I think we can get it etched into our brains, tatted on our souls, as it were. This in the background, what am I forgetting at any given moment? What am I forgetting? What am I forgetting? Like a neurotic person leaving their house for vacation. What is it that I'm forgetting? I know I'm forgetting something. What am I forgetting? Here's what the first thing we're going to look at today is this. When you're in the fog, you have to be careful and slow down, and you have to concentrate. (laughs) That's two. Be careful and slow down, that's one. Be careful and concentrate, that's two. Only be careful... Watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after you. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God. You listened to Him. You made a covenant with Him. He's about to give the Ten Commandments. He's about to say these words are to be etched on your heart. They're to be inscribed on you. You're to impress them on your children. Talk about them all the time. Have them on the door frames. Have physical reminders all around you. You've got to be careful. In the fog, when you're driving, the one thing you've got to do is you don't speed up unless you're a kamikaze. An NFL player might speed up. He's hoping for another concussion. But we slow way down. It's very important if you're going to remember God. It's very important to slow down sometimes. Mike Mason, in a great book called The Mystery of Marriage, says this about marriage. It's a very interesting thing that causes marriages to slip, causes people to fall apart from each other. It's simply this. He says, most married people are simply trying to do too much. They're not taking their vows seriously. They made this vow. You know, it's the only human relationship where you actually make a promise that forms the bond of how you start your life off together. You don't make any promises like that in a public way to anybody else. You don't do it even to your kids. 
It's implicit with them. But with your spouse, you do. But yet, it's so easy to start living separate lives. We've got things to do. Things are busy. We've got places to go. And all of a sudden, you, you forget each other. You don't know who each other is, are, were. Do you know that one of the easiest things that your world and Satan and even your own ADD heart has to do to make you forget God? It just has to keep you distracted. He doesn't have to actually argue you out of believing in Jesus. There are some of you here who have waned in your faith, and it's not because you suddenly don't believe in the resurrection. And if the resurrection happened, Jesus is true. He's the Lord of all. We better listen to him. But you don't even think about that. And you've not been reasoned out of believing that the Bible's true. He just makes sure you don't read it or that you don't think about it. He just keeps you in your car, driving from practice to practice. He just keeps you late at the office. He just keeps you on Facegram or Instatweet or something. Just mindlessly engaging nothing. And he just keeps you distracted. Like a wise parent who has a screaming kid, kids fighting over a toy. I used to think you could sort of principally walk a child through this. No, you need to share. No, you just distract the kid. If they want that thing, ah, I want that thing, I want that thing, I have to have that thing. And you just show them this thing. And they're like, oh, okay. And they forgot that thing. They just forgot about it because they got a new thing until somebody else wants it, and then you just got to show them another new thing. And I think Satan has very wisely concocted a world we live in right now where it is calculated for most of us. We were making a plan to promote the absence of God in our lives. You know how? We just haven't made a plan to promote his presence. We just don't think about it. So you don't have to be argued out of anything. You don't have to, like entertain the truth claims of it or whether there might be some reality to it. Just don't think about it because you're doing too many other things. So you've got to slow down. I can promise you this. When you're in a rush, you don't notice much of anything except how small your world is. You're thinking about, I've got to get there all the time. We can't be late. You hate the person in front of you. That's the extent of your world. What is wrong with you? Where are you going to speed limit? Well, I mean, do you hear yourself? They're going the speed limit. You don't ever say, what is wrong with me? Why am I living like this? Rushing around every second like this. I must be crazy. No, you just want to, you just want to, you're just glad you have a concealed permit and that you might get to use it later for the person who's going too slow in front of you. And you think that's justified and fine. Because you just forgot a lot of stuff. You forgot. What am I forgetting when you're that angry? Well, you forgot the image of God is driving in front of you and that you're the image of God. You weren't made to rush around frantically as if God has given you more to do than is possible. You forgot that God has made you His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which He prepared in advance for you to do. And there aren't more of them to do in a day than you have time to do. But you forgot. Because you're just rushing. So in the fall, you've got to be careful and you've got you to slow down. You've got to ask yourself, what am I forgetting right now? While I'm rushing, what am I forgetting? I've got to slow down. What am I not noticing? What good things have God, has God done that I haven't noticed or paid attention to? And then also when things sneak up on you, like happened to me the other day, I was, I'd gotten my car detailed. Yeah, that's right it was kind of a sociological experiment. 
I took it to this place. They do like 450 cars a, a, a month. And they looked at it and they're like, it's going to be $4,000. It's going to be our magnum opus. Not sure we can do anything. We never saw a car in this condition before. But man, we live for the challenge. If we can get this thing clean, we can probably cure all human ills. But it is going to cost you $4,000. And I was like, fine, because the car's making me... It, I'm joking about the 4000 It was only 3000 No, it wasn't that much, but I thought, my car's making me sick, maybe. It's old. Yeah. So I thought, let's just try one, just sort of one eco-blast of the car. If we can just make it more environmentally coddling to me and not so abrasive to my uh, allergies and soul. And so I did this. And, and, and Corby took me to pick it up one day. We had lunch or something. He took me out there. I don't remember the situation, but he took me out to pick it up. And these kind men, very kind men, very competent men, if you want to know where it is, I'll tell you because I'd love to recommend them. They're both Christians taking their work very seriously, wonderful guys. They discovered that I, you know, that I was a preacher. And Corby is a preacher. Steve Brown said, never tell people you're a preacher, but if they find out, don't let them be surprised. But we had talked earlier. And these guys, you know what they did? They were wonderful men. Seriously, wonderful. And they discovered uh, th- this connection with the Presbyterian Church, and they realized that we had a common friend, Rankin Wilburn. You, some of you may know, know Rankin. And uh, they proceeded. Rankin, Rankin is my, about my age. He's a pastor out in Los Angeles now. He used to be at First President Chattanooga. We got ordained at the same time in Chattanooga. And he's a friend. I mean, we've just talked on the phone some. We've emailed some. We've texted some recently. And he, this guy said, oh, you know Rankin? You know Rankin! He is the smartest man I've ever met in my whole life. He's the best preacher. I can't believe how good of a preacher he is when I hear him. I just feel like I'm having a transcendent experience of Jesus Christ. I tell my pastor at Brainerd Baptist, I tell his pastor's wife, I tell thousands and thousands of people how amazing Rankin is. He's the best preacher that ever lived on the face of the earth. And I'm sitting there going, I know, I know, he is. He really is. And I believe it. I think mean, he's a fantastic guy. I saw, I was with this guy when we got ordained together. We were being, uh, our sort of spiritual proctology exam in front of everybody at the presbytery. They didn't even care about me because Rankin went to Princeton for seminary and I went to, you know, straight down the middle of RTS. And so I got through no problem and then Rankin got up. He went to Princeton. They asked him questions. And he didn't know. He was supposed to be terrified. He's like, well, Steve, you want to start off soft with a little talk about superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism. <laughs> I love theoretical discussions about what's in the mind of God before he creates. <laughs> That's a joke. I just made that up. But he was so poised. He would call guys by name. I didn't know anybody's name. I didn't know my na- own name. And when he got done with his examination, I've never seen this done ever. He got a standing ovation, okay? A standing ovation. Presbyterians do not ovate. And they clapped. That is the finest exam we've ever seen in the history of the world. And I, that's awesome, it was. It really was. He's awesome. He's so awesome. And you know what? I really do think he's awesome. 
And in previous years, it would have destroyed and demolished me. But you know what has to happen in moments like that? You've been in moments like this. You hear somebody sort of profusely complimented in your sight. And inside, you, maybe you're starting to seethe in anger against them. Or you're wanting to, you're wanting to discount and level them in some way. <laughs> you don't know the full story. Because you feel slighted in some way. And so later on, I remember praying to the Lord, kind of chuckling. Like, Lord, it's true. He is that wonderful. Let me keep being, let me be happy for his wonderfulness. It doesn't diminish me that he's wonderful. But you've got to slow down and think it. Because your instant reaction is, my pride is being assaulted right now. Because we think for the moment, I'm being in competition with everybody else. And I have to remember, wait a second, wait a second, I belong to Jesus Christ. Gifts have been distributed by him. Wait a second. Rick and our buddies, we're not competitors. Everybody I meet, I don't have any competition in this congregation or in my family. I have no competitors. I have brothers and sisters that I'm called to love. Moses is saying, keep these impressed on you. Remember these commands from the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind, all you got. And love and be preoccupied with your neighbor as much as you love and are preoccupied with yourself. Use all the energy, all the attentiveness, all the power, all the compassion that you exercise for yourself, for your neighbor. So when you slow down, you can remember these things. You slow down, you go to prayer, you think of the why, why am I, why, why, why did I want for a minute to be like, okay, enough. We've been talking about this for 10 minutes. It's one big effusive praise fest. I get it. I agree with you. Can you please be quiet now? Why? Well, because something's defective in me. And when I slow down, I can remember the defect. I can remember the Lord who has rescued me, who endows me and him, and that we're not in competition with each other. That's just my pride that was flaring up for a minute. You've got to be careful and slow down in the fog and ask myself, what is it I'm forgetting right now? What am I forgetting? And the second thing is this, you've got to concentrate. You've got to learn to concentrate. Matthew Crawford, who wrote a book called Shop Class's Soulcraft, was writing about another book, and he said, education is all, all hinges on the ability to concentrate. And from the fruits of that concentration comes civilization. And that is all over now as we know it. And at the end of that, he says, so I guess we could say that we have royally and well screwed ourselves. That's what he said. Because we've lost the capacity to concentrate is what he's saying. We don't know how to concentrate. Some of you may have discovered this. He was commenting on a book by Nick Carr, Nicholas Carr called The Shallows, which is a description of what's happening to us. We're becoming very shallow, narrow people with no depth. Because we can't concentrate. We can't carry out a thought. Because we're too distracted. We're moving too fast. We're not remembering. We're letting go of things that were made for our hearts. Do not let them slip from your heart as long as you live. You have to learn to concentrate. And one of the ways that you do that is, for instance, memory. Impress these things on your children. Impress these things on your children. How do you impress something on your children that you've not been impressed with yourself? If you, if you walk around in the world and you've got nothing to draw from, which is to say you've got no memory to draw from, then you're an emaciated person. You're a weakling. 
Beth Warren told me recently, and I was so excited about this, that she said, thank you for urging us to memorize Scripture. I used to, I've always memorized verses, but I've started memorizing chapters. One, I memorized Romans chapter 8 while my brother was dying, and it's been so powerful and so helpful for me. I think I'm addicted to it now. That makes me happy. Because I realize that increasingly nobody knows what the Bible says. And you walk around, you don't have God's word teeming in you. You don't got nothing to remember. How can you remember the stories of God's deliverance? That the God who can bring water out of a rock, the God who can part the sea, the God who can reach down with his strong right hand, the God who raises the dead. If you don't have that in your head, how do you know which promises to link on to? Are you just someone led along by your own nose? If you don't learn to concentrate, you are going to be receiving an education everywhere around you, but not God's. I saw a billboard where someone apparently, when I was playing beach volleyball, must have taken a picture of me. It was a man with like 14-pack abs. And it said, because I play a lot of beach volleyball, and it said, it was like a uh, plastic surgery place, and it said, people will stare... So make it worth their while. Yeah. And I was like, why are they using an image of me without my express written consent? There was no head, so you couldn't tell it was me. That's weird, too. There was no head. Just like a headless torso with packed abs. And if you back up from that and you slow down from me, you say, isn't that weird? But it's also lovely, I guess. Well, so... That's what we're being educated by. You see that without thinking of it. You're like, yeah, I've got to get abs like that. Of course. You don't even ask the question. Of course I need to look like that. That's what my life is about. Looking good. I need to look good. That's what you see on Instagram. That's what you see all around you. Images are very important. I've got to look good. I've got to look good. This is the most important thing in my life. It's more worth anything. Than, more valuable than anything. Your kids are being educated all the time. Here's what your body is for. It's only for your own expression of whatever you desire. But the Bible says the body is for the Lord. The body is not made for sexual immorality. Your body was made for the Lord. And if you, if you run off the rails of his care for your body, you use it in wrong ways, you're going to bring destruction on yourself. So you've got to have memory. You've got to work to remember these things. You've got to have practices, keystone habits like praying, like reading the Bible, like worshiping, where you're getting the stuff of God inside you so you've got something to carry around with you as you encounter the world. And you've got something to teach your kids. I love the story of the man who told me, you've, the man down the road who said, I spent a few months memorizing the book of Romans and it healed my anger. I've never heard anybody tell me that their anger has been healed. And he said his, his anger was healed by memorizing the book of Romans. And I thought, that's not supposed to happen. Memorizing a book of the Bible, healing your anger? We all know that the word of God isn't anything except that it breathed the world into existence and raises the dead in the same power that raised the dead is also at work in us, we're told, who believe. You've got to learn to concentrate, though. And see, God, one of the ways he wants us to concentrate is to 
know these truths for ourselves. So there's so much a part of our DNA that they, they, they waft out of us. They become part of what's in our families. You know that in your family, you're teaching your children just like the world is all the time. Whether you expressly teach them or not, you're teaching your kids what we really believe. Your kids know what you really believe because it always comes out of you. It's everything you say and do says what you really believe. And so we've got to be working at that. We've got to be giving attention to that. We've got to be concentrating on that to not let these truths slip from us because ultimately the truths that console us are the truths that control us. That rhymes. I like that. You like that? The truths that console us are the truths that console us. Tr- uh, that, that control us, actually. Gosh. Man, what timing. It's terrible. The truths that console you. The ones you go to when you're frustrated. Like if you... If you get nervous and, and you get consoled by looking at your bank account. Well, it's saying something. Like, this money is what's really controlling me. My security depends on this money. Or, you know, you've had the experience perhaps of looking on social media somewhere and, and seeing on a picture a group of people and you can read their lips. On, the, on their lips it says... We're so glad that Eric is not here. You can tell that they're saying that in the photo. And you've already had the suspicion that everybody else is having a better life than you somewhere. You're stuck at your house on Saturday afternoon with your family, and you have this thought that surely the entire universe is involved in a party that you were excluded from. And they're all doing something really swell and wonderful. And at your house, it's gloomy, and there's mud, and there's lots of leaves on the ground. And in their picture on the same day, in the same community, everybody's tan. And their hair is flowing, and somehow or another, it's sunny. How do they do that? And it crushes you. If I was there, I'd be okay. Why is my life so terrible? Why do we have to live in this house? Why do we have to live in this family? Why do we have to live in this community? Why do we have... Do you do do any of these things ever? They call it the fear of missing out, I reckon. But you're consoling yourself with this false idea that if you were there, you'd suddenly be okay. You wouldn't. Because everywhere you are, you're always wanting to be somewhere else. Most places you are aren't good enough by virtue of the fact that you're there. And we have... We have diseased parts in us. But when we forget God, we say, oh, wait, wait, God doesn't want me to be covetous. He actually thinks that's a destructive and ruinous way to be. He wants me to cultivate contentment. So when I find myself jonesing for another life, another career, another family, another day, another vacation or whatever, when I find myself just jonesing and pining away from that, I can say, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. I was created. I was rescued by Jesus Christ who shows me what humanity is. And he told me not to covet. I'm supposed to impress that on my heart, that I'm supposed to cultivate our attitude of contentment, not covetousness. See, if I'm concentrating, I can do this. And kids get confused so easily, we have to help them with it. A dad told me the other night at the fall festival, he said, my daughter was at school today, and she told her teacher that she was going to be going to the fall, uh, to the fall funeral tonight. And the, and the teacher said to me, like, uh, your daughter said you were going to, like, a, a funeral, but that there were going to be games and prizes? 
She was close. The fall festival, fall funeral, it's a, it's a young mind. But you need help sometimes. We get confused. I get confused. And we need people who are bothering to concentrate on what God has said and letting it become part of them so they got something to offer to the world and to each other, to their children. You've heard me say, you heard me send out the other day, we got Jesus in our hearts, but we got grandpa in our bones. And there's a whole lot about your life that you find going cattywampus. You find yourself getting irate about. You find yourself getting sad about. You find yourself being dejected about. And it might have nothing to do with Jesus. I talked to a couple in premarital counseling the other day and was using this silly example of loading the dishwasher. Have you ever had this experience? Say your spouse loads the dishwasher and you're, what are you doing? Are you kidding me? That's how you load the dishwasher? You're like, I didn't realize that Jesus had given us specs on this thing. You don't put that there. You put that there. Everybody knows that. Garrison Keillor had a great skit the other night about a man and a wife, and the man put his cup on the counter. She said, what are you doing? I just, I just put my cup down and done with it. Well, why don't you just put it in the sink? Well, because I just put it in the ca- on a counter. It's a counter. Well, put it in the sink. Well, I, I don't, I'm just going to leave it here. It's close to the sink. What is wrong with you? Put it in the counter. I mean, put it in the sink. And he says, make me. And the next thing you know, she's got a gun pulled on him. And he says, why are you holding a gun, honey? We're liberal Democrats. And she said, you're going to move that glass and put it in the sink. And while you're at it, what are those doing there? They've been there for three months. He says, they're cufflinks. They don't take up any space. They don't go there. I am sick and tired of the chaos and the clutter in this house. You got grandpa in your bones. You got mama in your bones. And one of the hardest things about ever changing is releasing some of that and saying, let the Lordship of Jesus Christ come over, permeate me, alter the way I'm thinking. I'll find myself suddenly not getting so mad about so much. I won't have such unrealistic expectations that I'll put on everything so I won't ruin Christmas for everyone because they're ruining it for me by not making it come as lively true as it should. You and I need to remember Jesus Christ. That's what Paul said. To Timothy, reflect on these things and the Lord will give you insight into all of them. Remember Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Remember Jesus Christ. In the fog, you've got to be careful and you've got to slow down. And you've got to concentrate. You know what it's like. You have moments where God could do something good in your life. And 30 minutes, 30 minutes ago, he could have done something and you could forget about it. But you remember something hard that happened in your life that he didn't do what you wanted 30 years ago. That's what Keller says. And I think it's really valuable that you say, I've got to be a person who concentrates because in the middle of the crisis, everything gets small. And I've got to back up and let the world get large again and remember whose universe I'm in and who I'm for and who has rescued me. And I close with this. I was reading a great story uh, this guy named Robert Smith, who's a preaching professor at the at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham. 
And he talks about being a young man wishing he knew how to dance. I mean, because everybody can't, they're not as fluid as I am. And he said, it so helped me because I was so embarrassed and I felt like I never could dance. I paid a friend to teach me and it was useless. I felt kind of socially ostracized about it. And so I, but I read this book from this other preacher who also as a teenager, he really, really wanted to learn to dance, but he couldn't. And he felt like he was left out and he felt like he couldn't participate in parties and he couldn't be, a, couldn't, couldn't be with his friends. It was so embarrassing for him until one day he bought himself this book. How to Dance. They didn't have YouTube t- tutorials in this day. And so he said, I started learning everything about dancing. I would sit in my room for hours. Out in front of a mirror, I'd hold a pillow. I would learn all the steps of dancing, and I feel like intellectually I was getting it. I concentrated on this stuff. He slowed down, and he, he, he appropriated it. He said, I got the steps. I got the footwork. And I had intellectually everything I was supposed to do, but I... I just didn't have the feel of it. I was utterly graceless, he said, until one day I was at a party. This is not a rave. Think of something different. Go back to 1950. I was at a party, and a young woman, it's always a young woman, a young woman noticed me there and my awkwardness, and she asked me if I wanted to dance. And at first I felt terribly embarrassed. I don't know about this. But I started to dance with her and she was so graceful. And as we started to dance, I realized that it was as if some of her grace, some of her poise was coming off of her onto me. And I suddenly started getting the feel of it. We were on Dancing with the Stars. And... I suddenly started getting the feel of it that this, this young woman who really knew how to do this, that her grace came off of her and, and filled up my graceless self so that I could actually move with the feel of it. If you are going to be somebody who remembers God, one, you've got to have graceful people in your life because we can't remember this stuff by ourselves. The author of Hebrews says to encourage each other daily as long as it is called today so that none of us is hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We're all amnesiacs and we need each other to help us remember. But then we also have this. Remember Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth, who says, here's the main thing about your life. It's never the stuff you think is the main thing about your life. You think if you just were in the right group the right school, the right career, the right family, that suddenly everything would be fixed for you. Come dance with me. Let your graceless self get some of my grace on you. And remember Jesus Christ who invites the awkward and the embarrassing and the weak and the dejected and those who forget him. Remember the one who said, I rescued you out of Egypt. And you are my treasured possession. Do you know that my mom thinks that I know how to dance? Because she's seen me dance before with my wife, who does know how to dance. And so we twirl and we do, but all I'm doing is standing there and moving my arms in right ways while she does the right stuff. And she makes me look like I know what I'm doing, so I don't mind being out there for very long. Jesus Christ, remember him. Concentrate 
on Him. Seek Him. Give attention to Him. Slow down for Him who welcomes the awkward to dance so that some of your gracelessness gets overcome by His gracefulness so that you can live in the fog. If you forget Him, your life is fog. If you remember Him, you can move even when it's foggy. Amen.